Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's the word of the Lord. We are in a series of messages called Manifesto. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for the better part of six months, and it's been a joy. I have to confess, though, uh, I underestimated how much Jesus really wants to drive home the point of true belief and false belief. And here we see it once again in Matthew 7, don't we? I mean, I literally have on the top of my notes up here the scariest thing Jesus ever said. Am I right? You read it and you're like, what? Like, no, I don't want to hear a sermon on that. You know, like, and, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of scary things, but nothing quite like this. Um, you know, it's said that there'll be at least two surprises in heaven. And it has to do with the kinds of people that will be there. One has to do with the kinds of people that you didn't expect to be in heaven that will be in heaven, right? I mean, think about this just from the Bible, just from the Bible's point of view on this. There's going to be polygamists in heaven, I mean, David, right? Uh, There's going to be uh, swindlers like Zacchaeus that rip people off. You know, there's going to be prostitutes like Rahab uh, in heaven. There's going to be crooked thieves that haven't been baptized, like the thief on the cross. We're going to be surprised by some of the people that we see in heaven when we enter through eternity's shore, aren't we? The other side of this is we're going to be surprised at the kinds of people that we don't see there. And this is really what Jesus seems to hone in on this morning in Matthew 7. This, this, this sermon in this text in particular is geared toward the religious leaders of the day. I mean, this would be like uh, this would be like a, a, a kind of a pastor's conference or something that he's preaching this to. I mean, if we want to look at it in the context, pastors and church leaders conference is what he's preaching this sermon to, and he's saying this hard truths to. And here's the essence of what he's going after here. It is extremely possible to be an unconscious hypocrite, that, that you can know a lot about God and that you can do a lot for God and you can never be known by God. That's terrifying, isn't it? You've got all of the indicators on the outside of someone who is following God, but on the inside, you're as far away as the worst person you can imagine. These are the truths that he gives us this morning. So as you hear the word preached this morning, and uh, you hear the word read, and you hear the word sung this morning, and you sing along with the word this morning, uh, what I want to be careful to to not do is this, and at least the first part of this message is I don't want to circumvent or go around uh, the, the Spirit's conviction on any of our lives. Because here's what I'm tempted to do, if I'm honest. I'm tempted to, I'm tempted to read this, these passages from Matthew 7 that say, you know, hey, didn't I say, Lord, Lord, and didn't I do all of these things, and then Jesus said, I never knew you. I'm tempted to immediately follow that up, you know, w- with something like a Romans 10.9, that if you confess and you believe, you'll be saved. Or Romans 8.1, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm tempted to jump straight to assurance. But here's what I notice about Matthew 7, is that Jesus 
doesn't seem to get there too quickly, does he? In fact, one of the, the three chapters that comprise the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7 being the one I'm talking about, is really all about judgment and how you interpret and how you receive the word of the Lord. So, so what I want to encourage you to do is to receive that and let the, let the word hit you this morning. Uh, I'm going to hit the flip side of it in the second point where I remind you of who saves us and who redeems us and what he does. But the first part is going to sting a little bit. And it's because I think Jesus wants it to, to sting a little bit this morning. So, um, you know, I was just talking uh, with a brother in my missional community this week. And uh, I was just kind of talking about what I was preaching on this weekend. And he said, you know, uh, <clears throat> I, he said, I was in church for a long time. And uh, there was this instance where I was getting ready to do like theological battle against this guy on the internet. You know what I'm talking about? Like this guy is saying this one thing about this one truth and he's got this other theology and you are just about to lay into this guy with the truth. I mean, you're about to take, you know, spiritual ammunition to this guy. What, what he's described doing. And he says, as he began to scour the scriptures for hours, and began to look at the scriptures, he came across Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, and it pierced him. And it stopped him in his tracks because he realized that he was the guy. And I think we have to be willing this morning to consider the fact that this could be any of us. That we could actually say that we know God and do a lot of things for God. And that maybe some of us have been in the church for a long time. I, you know, here's, here's what I want to get pushed to the side. It doesn't matter how many books of the Bible you have memorized or verses. It doesn't matter um, how much money you give away. It doesn't matter how many mission trips you've been on or how much stuff you've done for God. None of it matters. The Pharisees had more, I promise. What matters is this. Has your heart been changed by God and is Jesus living on the inside of you? Because there's no amount of good works, there's no amount of good deeds that can mop up the stains of our sin. I promise you that. And so whatever it is, if you were to come to God today and say, this is why you should let me in heaven. If it's anything other than Jesus, we've got to set that aside, church. We've got to be willing to ask ourselves the question, does Jesus know me? And we really can't stop asking the question as we walk with him in life. And and as scary as it is to ask that question, it's even more scary not to ask it, right? Because we'd rather be in the light than the darkness. And so the big idea of where we're going is this today. Um, we can be known by God and that changes everything. We can be known by God and that changes everything. So let's look at the first point here. It's this, it's, it's possible to know a lot about God and not be known by God. Uh, so... Um, let, let me tell you what this um, does not mean real quick. Um, that, that at the end of time, because Jesus is talking about judgment when he returns and, and the, the great white throne judgment and, and you know, pe people appear before him and, and, and he, would say, he would say these, these things to his people. Let, let's just read it again real quick so we know where we're coming from. Matthew seven twenty one uh, through 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, comes up to me and asks, acts like they know me will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and, 
and do many mighty works also in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here's what that, that Scripture does not mean. It doesn't mean that, that at the end of time, people who genuinely desired to know Jesus and who had hearts that burned for the Gospel and had received the gift of the Holy Spirit will come to Jesus and He'll say, I didn't know you. That's not who we're talking about here. That's not what we're talking about here. And how do I know this? Because people who are known by God, they get to Judgment Day, and just like I said a second ago, they, they get to the end of time and they realize that the only thing that they have to offer, the only good that exists in them is Jesus Christ and His righteousness. And so, this, this passage is aimed at the, the person who has the exterior posture of a Christian, but on the inside isn't really marked by grace. And, and it's what Jesus has been wanting to expose in the, the church at large, kind of the, the big C church, but also in the micro church, the local church as well. Um, and according to Jesus, uh, here's kind of what this person looks like. And, and I'm going to use the language uh, of a sermon that I read from a, a pastor that preached uh, on a similar text to this. Uh, and from the early 18th century, his name is George Whitfield, and he was one of the guys that, that spurred on uh, the First Great Awakening. He was a great evangelist in America, and, and he entitled his sermon uh, that he preached on Acts 26, The Almost Christian. Ouch, right? Yeah. I mean, is almost ever a good word? It's like, we almost won the game. You know, I, I almost got the job. It's never good, right? It's just like insufficiency is what it describes, and he got that title from Acts 26 where where King Agrippa looks at Paul and he says, you almost persuaded me to be a Christian. You almost persuaded me. And so, so here are some of the marks of the, the almost Christian is what I want to kind of go into with this passage uh, here. In short, the almost Christian is, is fond of the form, but he never experiences the power of godliness in his heart. He goes on year after year, and he attends the means of grace, but he never experiences a transformed heart. So what are some of the marks of the almost Christian? Um, they're people that say, Lord, Lord. They make a profession of faith. They, they have the, the proclamation of the gospel. This is who the, Jesus is aiming this at. They've said the right things, is, is what he's saying. They, they have done many good things, even uh, miraculous things. I mean, think about this. Uh, on that day, these, these, these folks that approach Jesus will say, Hey, Jesus, didn't, didn't we like prophesy in your name? Like we spoke about you to people. And, and we, we healed people in your name. We casted out demons in your name. They've done my, many uh, miraculous things. They've been conduits of God's power. Yet they were never known by God. That's possible, he's saying. Third thing is this. There's this false notion of what religion actually is. So the almost Christian stands before God on his own works and his own righteousness. And, and let me say this, that your works matter to God. If anything, we need to see that our works matter more to God than we ever realized that they did. And here's what I mean by that. What does Jesus say in Matthew 7.23 when he says, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He says that they thought that they were doing the works of God, but they actually were never doing the real work of God. It's kind of a legal thing that he says to them, you workers of lawlessness, they didn't get the heart of what it meant to obey God. 
They missed that part. So, so your works matter, they don't, but they don't matter in the sense that we think they do a lot of times. We, we think that they can earn us something. But really, the difference is, is that they're always empowered by God. They're never to earn God's favor. So it's, a lot of times we think that our works and the things that we do are, will enable us to kind of break into eternity. But really, the way that we need to see it is, is that they flow from the heart of God through us. It's like Martin Luther once said, um, this isn't in my notes, so I might misquote it a bit. He says, uh, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does, right? Um, and I think it's true. But God is interested in your lifestyle and your obedience. He very much is. So a helpful, a helpful kind of subtext for this is uh, this, this story about the rich young ruler, okay? So it comes from Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 10, verses 7 through 22 it's in some other places in the gospels as well but i'm going to read it for us and it gives us a picture of kind of this false notion of religion that someone who might be an almost christian struggles with and it says this in mark chapter 10 verses 17 and following and and he was setting out on his journey as he was setting out on his journey this is jesus a man ran up and knelt before him and listened to the presupposition of his approach to jesus good sir what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. He's just rattling off some of the Ten Commandments here. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Now, I think we can, we can read that and we can think, what a joker. Like, yeah, whatever, man. Like, you have not always honored your parents. Come on. Now, we can read it like that. But here's the way that I've chosen to hear this. I think this dude was a really good dude. This was the kind of dude that you would want your daughter to marry, okay? If I'm honest, right? This is a good dude. He's not just a joker. He's not just a liar. He's a good dude. He looks great on the outside. And Jesus... And get, don't miss this. Jesus looking at him, verse 21, loved him. Jesus loved this brother, this man, so much to put his finger on the thing that separated him from a relationship with Jesus that would change his life. And he looks at him and he says to him, okay, you've done them all, okay. But you lack this one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And then you can come and follow me. So the man responds, disheartened by the saying, verse 22, he went away sorrowful, for he had many great possessions. So there's, there's, there's two things here going on. Um, one is his motive for giving, I think, and the other is his possessions. Those are the two things that, that kind of are underneath the surface of why he walks away sad. He, so he has, he's, he has everything, you know, like us, j just like us. We have, we have everything. Um, he's got a squeaky clean, clean record, and uh, maybe unlike some of us, I, I, I don't know. He, he assumed that because of his power, wealth, and religion that there had to be something that, that he could do, you know. Um, and so he's got everything, and yet... 
Jesus says, go and give it to people who cannot do anything for themselves, who cannot do what you've done with your life. That's who I want you to give it to. I think that's significant. I think it matters just as much as the fact that he has possessions. It matters who Jesus tells him to go give it to. Go give it to undeserving people. Now, why would Jesus tell him to go give all that he has, sell it, give all of his money to those who are undeserving? Because that's a spiritual picture of our condition before God. We are all undeserving, rotten sinners, and there's not anything that we can do to change our standing other than grace. And so he tells them to go and, and give it to those types of people so that maybe you'll see that you're undeserving and needy just like them. And then, then there's the other kind of elephant in the room with it, that he's got all of this stuff. And it matters to him, just like our stuff matters to us, just like our money, church, matters to us. And it's not just metaphorical to us. You know, I was reading the book of Acts, Acts 2 with our missional community this week, and we read that beautiful, uh, you know, seven verses or so, five or seven verses in Acts 2, 42 through 47, where it kind of gives you the snapshot of the church and just kind of like a, like peeking in the window of what the church was like, right? And, and one of the things that struck me um, was the fact that, that the Scripture said that they were generous and ready to share with anyone who had need and that they, they enjoyed their food with glad and sincere hearts. And I think about that and I, and I ask myself this question about generosity. And I just wonder um, if you'll ask the same thing. Am I a generous person? Is... Is my stuff and my grip on my stuff keeping me in the box of kind of like an almost Christian? If we could ask that question. And one of the indicators that it might be doing that is if it never leaves your hand. That's what it was for the rich young ruler, right? And to just kind of state kind of clearly the way that I see generosity playing out in the Scriptures is that, that we, we are called as God's people to be generous toward the poor and toward our church in particular. And this isn't the sermon on money, but I would be being disobedient to not share those things with you. Uh, that God calls us to be generous people. And it's one of the marks of the gospel and God's grace on our lives. So the man walked away disheartened. Because what God was asked, what Jesus was asking of him seemed to be more than he could get from Jesus. How does that hit you this, this morning? The last thing I want to share is this, is uh, lives marked by fear of man. So the almost Christian has a, has a life marked by the fear of man. Um, and here's, here's what I mean by this. I'm not talking about like the fear that I had of Jesse Ray Perry when I was walking down the, the schools of Sapple Street Elementary School in fourth grade. I'm not talking about that kind of fear, right? You, you know what I'm talking about, the big bully that could just own you? Yeah, that was Jesse Ray. Anyway, I'm still having nightmares about it, but... Maybe I'll get over it. Um, but rather, I'm talking about uh, the fact that, that, that we're, we might, our fear of man is a, our fear of other people is an evidence that we are terrified that the Holy Spirit might actually change us and transform us into something that looks different than before we followed God. That, that we might actually live a different way than we did before. We're terrified by that. And we see that whenever, whenever God calls us to do something and we, we stop. And this is another guy in my missional community this week talk, talked about stopping because he's afraid of something and not obeying God. 
God gripped them because he realized that he had this fear of man that didn't come from God. We see this in John chapter 3. I'll give you another, another picture. There's this guy named Nicodemus, right? He's a, he's a religious leader. He's a Pharisee. And he approaches Jesus. Let's read a few verses here. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. His name was Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. And, and here's the key right here. It's always these little subtle things that give us the nuances of how people relate to Jesus. The man came to Jesus by night. We can stop right there. Why did he come to Jesus at night? Because he was a Pharisee. And he was supposed to have it all together. But there was something, church, that was keeping him awake at night. And it was the fact that he wasn't known by God. He wasn't known by God and so he couldn't sleep. And so, to satisfy his curiosity, he goes to Jesus in the middle of the night so that no one could see him. When he approaches him, we'll pick up here. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a good teacher and you've, you've come from God. He approaches him with the same kind of props that the other guy did, right? For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. No, notice that. He, he doesn't say that you are God, but that God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And we skip on to verse 9 here. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? He's getting caught up on the physical here and, and the spiritual. But the, the bottom line about what Jesus is after in us, about what he's after in the almost Christian, is that we actually have to be reborn. We have to get new hearts because our old hearts function from a different paradigm than the paradigm of grace that he's given us to function within. It's, it's quid pro quo. It's, it's if you do this, I do that. That's what we see in Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Jesus did not do these things. Didn't you see my list? How tall it was. I mean, it was a scroll. It was rolled up. I had so much good stuff, Jesus. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Isn't that scary? I'm getting scared preaching it. When we think about passages like Romans 10.9, which is a, a passage that we jump to. It's a great passage. It talks about salvation. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Okay, the Matthew 7 guy does this, doesn't he? The Matthew 7 guy does this. He, he confesses that Jesus is Lord. So, so Romans 10a, check. I've done that. Romans 10.9b, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's another layer below the surface here. That the person that's the almost Christian cannot do that and stay the same. That God changes you when you believe that God actually raised someone from the dead. I had an encounter this week. <laughs> I wasn't planning on talking about this. But I um, had an encounter this week as I was making cabinets in my uh, driveway, doing a little renovation project. Um, with with some with some folks that wanted to talk about faith, and uh, they they came out and uh, I began to to engage and 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 when they came and they, they they shared the truths that they had to share with me and left me a pamphlet and I um, I was thinking about it okay, but all of the things that they shared with me are things that I agree with, 
And so they, they walked by, and I let them walk by, and then they passed back by my house. I said, hey, 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 hold up. Can we talk some more? And they were like, oh, okay. And so I walked up and began to talk with them, and I said, guys, there has to be a difference in what we believe. There has to be. Can you tell me what it is? And they said, well, tell me what you believe. And I said, well, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and because he rose from the dead, that he is God incarnate. That only God can do that. And I said, oh, that's, that's, the, that's the difference. And guys, I can't tell you what began to happen in my heart. I, it wasn't anger. It wasn't anger, but I was, I was so saddened as I heard the distortion of God's Word. And I heard the distortion of the truths that I cling to so dearly. And I heard the deception in the hearts of my friends that were in my driveway. When you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, it changes everything about your story. You can't stay in the almost camp anymore. So let's, let's keep going here. Number two, uh, there's a tremendous freedom in being known by God. Okay, so now we can kind of take a deep exit. Okay, that was, that was heavy for all of us, right? To think through that. Jesus tells these false disciples in Matthew 7, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And, w- and what... What that means is that the only way to be an altogether Christian instead of an almost Christian is to be truly and deeply known by God. That when we try to fight to know God, that we can be unknown to God. But when God knows us because He created us before the foundations of the world, and He redeemed us, and He called us, and He elected us, and He predestined us for salvation, and He did all of those things that we read in Romans 8. That He knows us. And so then our, our confidence in God isn't shaken when we realize, oh, I'm a Christian, but I'm still a sinner. Isn't that what shakes our confidence so much when we see our lives still a wreck even though we're following Jesus? The good news that I have for you this morning is this, is that you don't have to posture yourself in front of Jesus. It, maybe you've spent your life doing that. Maybe you've spent your life posturing yourself in front of your family, in front of your church, in front of your friends, in front of your co-workers. And when you're known by God, you don't have to do that because he knows you. And nothing can change about your status and standing with God when Jesus knows you. Listen to how the Apostle John writes it in 1 John 4, 7 through 19. I'm going to walk through this for the rest of our time and then we'll wrap it up. He says this, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By the way, that word know is the same, it's gnosko, It's, it's Matthew 7 here as well. It's the same word, it's the same type of knowledge, this more than just head, it's also heart. He's going after it here. He says, In this love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live for Him. Is that what it says? No. That we might live through Him. That's a big difference, right? For, for us to live through Him or us to live for Him. The Matthew 7 God was trying to live for God. First John says that the true believer is someone that lives through God. It's a huge difference in the way that we, that we think about it. 
So, so whoever has the works of the fruit of love throwing through their life is evidence that they know God is what he's saying. If love flows through you, it must mean that love has flown to you. That you are known by God, that God has changed you, that He has marked you, and that you are His. Now, this unconditional, selfish love that, that is only really concerned about ourselves and our standing, and we get to the end of our lives in Matthew 7, and we say, God, look, 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 look what I've done. That was never love. That was never done from a place of love, was it? Because 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. Rights or wrongs, right? Love doesn't keep a record. And so when God is working through you, His Spirit is alive in you, those works aren't your good works. They're Jesus' good works. And they don't count for anything for you because it's Jesus flowing through you by His Spirit. That's what 1 John is talking about. John is saying you can't fake this type of love. It's known because it's otherworldly. And you've experienced this love from other people, from your, maybe your parents, from your friends, maybe from uh, other Christians. You've, you've experienced an otherworldly love that meets you in your, your sin, your, your barrenness before God, your lowest points is typically the times that you see God's love most unconditionally manifested in your life. You've seen it before. And he says, that's how you know someone knows God, if you're tracing it, tracing it back. He goes on to say this, verse 10, picking up here. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be, big word here, the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in Him. And He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. What a rich passage, right? So what is the picture of love? I'm glad you asked. That love was actually made known to us by God. So it wasn't that, that Jesus, that our Father in Heaven rather, just sent us a bunch of Valentine's Day cards from eternity, right? No. He didn't send you some chocolates. He didn't show up with roses, you know. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. His love grew legs and walked into the world. That's what it means that He was a propitiation for our sins. He, he came, listen to this, He came to stand in your place for God's wrath and judgment against sin. And I know we don't like to talk about this, but Matthew 7 is all about judgment. My hands are tied. Yeah. He, he came to deal with that. Your biggest problem is not this coworker that you're having beef with at work or your neighbor that never mows their yard or the family member that you're just in, in fits with. It's, it's your problem with you and God is your problem. And we, we can try to, to church it up and dance around that idea, but the biggest problem is this, is that we're all going to face God. And, and he, he's probably going to ask the question, like, why should you inherit eternity with me? 
And the only standing that we have is that God's love grew legs and Jesus became the object of God's wrath against sin. And because of that, now judgment is a good thing for us. Because we don't have to fake it anymore because God poured out all of His wrath on the cross. And we look at that cross and we, we, we put it in here every week. Not because there's anything special about that old ratty cross right there. That, that particular one. But the idea of the cross means that it's finished. Isn't that what Jesus uttered from the cross? It's, fi- it's finished. No, there's no more wrath to be poured out against God's children. It's finished. There's no more doubt that you have to have about your standing before God because it's finished. There's nothing left to judge because it's finished. Guys, that changes everything about our story. It means that Jesus' sacrifice pays past, present, future sin. He deals with it all because He rose from the dead. And notice that this becomes our confidence. Let's keep reading. 1 John 14, 15-16. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him. Or He lives in Him. And He in God. So we have come to know and believe that the love that God has for us. We've had to come and to know and believe it. We, we don't get it all at once. We have to grow in it, is what he's saying. That God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. We're all wrapped up together in the Holy Spirit. Because of God's love, we can love. And God doesn't just look down from heaven and say, bless your heart, you sinners. Right? He doesn't do that. No, He sends Jesus because His love grew legs for us. And I, you know, I was sitting at lunch with a brother this week who inadvertently preached, well maybe it wasn't inadvertently, he preached the gospel to my soul and the, I won't forget the words that he said. Uh, he said it, it, it wasn't until I hit rock bottom in my life, and he t- told, told me about the scenario, he said that God's love met me for the first time and I saw myself there before all the world and God meeting me and loving me and that's what changed me. I couldn't keep up with the postures anymore. That's, that's the moment that I was changed. That's, that's when grace met me. And I began to live with a different paradigm. Church, do you, do, you, do you know and believe the love that God has for you this morning? <laughs> I remember asking my daughter Tatum, this is probably four years ago, you know, why does, why does Daddy love you? And, and she said, you know, because I obey. And I was like, oh. That's like the last thing I want to hear. Like, right? That's like this conditional love. And I just remember trying to trying to coach her up and say, "Don't say that," you know. But that's what she felt. <laughs> and uh, you know, God loves us because He loves us. That's what we read in Deuteronomy seven, right? When when Moses is writing about the Israelites and he says, "You know, it wasn't because Israel was something special. The fewest of all people groups." They had the, the fewest of them. They didn't have much power. They didn't have much stuff. They didn't have much land. But it was because God set His love on them that He loved them. He loved them because He loved them. Church, God loves you because He loves you. Will you receive it? Will you receive it this morning? Will your heart be reaffirmed in it? Or maybe you'll believe it for the first time this morning. I don't know. But that's the difference in the almost Christian and the altogether Christian. Is they've received the love of God. 
But listen to what happens when you receive the love of God. 1 John 14, 17 through 19. We'll land the plane here. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Isn't that what we're looking for? Because as He is, also we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. Now here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you have a, an ounce of fear in your heart and you ever get afraid of something, that you must not love God. I'm not saying that because we're being perfected. God is changing us. We're always mixed with fear and faith, right? It's, it's a mixture there. But, but what we do see is that when the love of God in Christ meets your heart, that you have a confidence that you've never had before. A confidence that's otherworldly. A confidence that doesn't depend on you. So you've got, if you think about it like this, your profession of faith minus your possession of Jesus equals fear and insecurity. So if you're in a place in life right now where you constantly find yourself riddled with fear and insecurity, like we have to be willing to ask the question, do I actually possess Jesus? Does He love me? Do, does He know me? Have I let Him know me? I'm not, I'm not saying that if you struggle with anxiety or insecurity, I'm not minimizing that in any degree. That's very significant. But if it's something that plagues your life, you have to ask the question, do I actually know God? But he gives us this other picture that possession and profession, like when you actually possess Jesus, when you believe that God raised him from the dead, and you, you profess, you confess his name, that you have a confidence through love. And that's what we're after um, today. So here's my question to you. Are you going to keep running to your Christian trophy shelf as you stand before God and others? Or will you let God's love flow through you this week, church? And be willing to ask yourself the question, does God know me and do I know him? Let's pray together. Father, we, we just come to you this morning and um, we don't take these truths lightly, God that you want us to sit in, that you want us to, to hear and absorb. Um, Lord, I pray against the enemy's power to cause anyone to doubt that's following you. I pray that you, your spirit would come and comfort us and remind us of all things we have in Jesus. And Father, for those in here this morning um, who may profess Christ but do not possess Him, God, I pray that in your kindness this morning, God, that let them know that's where they're at. And uh, while it's scary to acknowledge that reality, it's far more scary to not. So Jesus, would you meet us and be kind to us as we continue in worship this morning? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.